So uh, I wanted to, to start by thanking you. I was thinking about what a great uh, privilege it is uh, to sit in your presence uh, in um, you know the my kind of designated room, and to uh, I, I think of it sometimes in the, the Hindu tradition they t- use the word darshan. Uh, and darshan simply translates as seeing that you come in and uh, we get to see you. And it's a huge, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, opportunity uh, in these, you know, practice discussions uh, that we get to see. And both sides, you know. Uh, It certainly isn't one way. I always think of like, there is some way that uh, hearts meet hearts and uh, minds then understand. Many, many years ago, I was thinking, oh, back in the middle, oh boy, a long time ago, middle 70s, um, I was an assistant to S.N. Goenka. And one of my jobs, that I had been traveling with him, and, and um, uh, I was asked to uh, sit in uh, with people that are having problems. And so, first of all, I said, you know, I, I don't know if I can do this. I, I, you know, I've been around for some years, but it was like, oh, this uh, maybe isn't something I can do. And Asenguenka uh, said, no, no, it's fine. All you have to do is do metta. You know, just sit and bring your attention, keep your mind and your body, and just do loving kindness. That is uh, what uh, can be done. And I've taken that to heart, that that's really the essence of our um, practice discussions, is that we come and we bring our kind of our stories, uh, sometimes painful, sometimes amazing. Uh, Sometimes it's very collected. Other times it's uh, kind of all over the map. But the story is that we come together for, it seems like a short time, uh, always, and uh, part of the art I see of, uh, of this uh, seeing, this darshan, uh, is being able to uh, be transparent enough to let go of one as another enters. It's quite a, um, a marvelous uh, means of also teaching for ourselves in the sense of uh, letting go, uh, because you all are quote, dropped in at this point. You know, if you don't recognize it, it's okay. (laughs) So I I wrote a poem last night, and I have to... uh, Well, first, just a few things about it. You know, it seems like I've written a lot of these things, and... Uh, you know, it's not, I don't consider them good or bad or anything. They're just a way uh, for me to honor uh, the kind of process here that's going on. And uh, this collection of, uh, of community of Sangha for this period of time, you know. So yesterday afternoon I was out looking and it was absolutely gorgeous, you know. And there was a crow up on top of the roof and gurgling away, you know, just babbling. 
And uh, I have kind of Native American roots, and I was thinking, oh, you know, uh, the crow is the messenger. And uh, the crow uh, comes to speak to us uh, of the unseen, you know, uh, or uh, kind of transmit that that is here to the heavens is another way of speaking of it. So anyway, that's uh, the piece around the crow. So, uh, I guess I have to put a glasses on though. Even I can't read myself some days. It's called, I did the one for the frogs the other day, so now it's crow. Crow speaks. Maybe the sanctuary of this practice, held so keenly by the two-winged crow, bursting with its chatter, sending its message from retreatants to the heavens, perched on the pinnacle of our hall, viewing our own longing for freedom, covered over by the dark doors of our own hope and fear. We sat quietly, unruffled in the unseen. The weight of our own shadow, slowly dissolving under the intense light of our own awareness. Slowly dissolving under the intense light of our own awareness. The great light of our own goodness shining from behind. Believing that that we will be blinded. Slowly we turn into, directly into the sun. Words, ideas, images dissolve in the light of this truth. Finally exhausted, we stop struggling. A free being can only praise what cannot be described. A free being can only praise what cannot be described. Every bit of the known relaxes in this wonderment of peace. So this afternoon, uh, I'd like to explore with you. Uh, it's really uh, about healing and blessing. And uh, the story goes that Saraputra, one of the um, uh, most revered uh, disciples of the Buddha, got sick. He got very sick. And so the Buddha went to him, and and uh, and you know, there's this banter back and forth about, well, how sick are you? And uh, he says, I'm very sick, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it goes on and on, and they kind of banter about this. And he said, well, I have a healing for you. And at that point, he gave the teachings on the seven factors of awakening. And as Saraputra heard these words, he actually physically was healed. And uh, with that, over the uh, many millennium now, 
uh, that this, these seven factors have been about healing. And they are, in a sense, uh, also, uh, they speak directly to the truth of uh, uh, what allows uh, this, that we call the deathless or awakening or nibbana as uh, kind of the source or the result uh, of this uh, truth of these uh, factors of awakening. They are factors. Now, it was interesting because I had to read all these different, uh, was it yesterday? Was it, yeah, I guess how we saw that. Well, I better, uh, this is, uh, I have to investigate this a little and, and see what's there. So I read a bunch of people's things on it. Absolutely boring. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, uh, it is just, you know, some of this stuff is kind of dry and, and uh, uh, even though it may be worthy of investigation, uh, it depends on the, you know, mind that looks at it. But my, for my mind, it was, whoa, you know, dry. <laughs> So I thought, okay, this is, you won't find this anywhere else. But it is a uh, particular uh, way that I have come across uh, the factors of awakening and how they uh, help me uh, in the sense of, uh, first of all, they are uh, things that are based on healing. I think sometimes all this is, this hall, you know, it's basically, it's the paradoxical thing between the you know the person sitting next to you inspires you because they're so they may be so quiet and peaceful or someone else in the room here, and that there is this kind of vision that somehow in this room uh, everybody's better than me at this. But ultimately, this is just a garbage dump. You know, uh, we're just here kind of dumping these old uh, stories so that we can lighten up. Uh, and find these factors and how they work in us. You know, uh, it's not so complicated. You know. So the way I frame it is, uh, there's uh, one was, I remember I was actually next month, I'm going up to teach in Sun Valley, and I was up there and it was a big snowstorm. And I had this terrible attack, kind of a sciatica, and, and we we're going along, and I was thinking about, well, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to do? And there was this snowplow, you know, that was kind of dividing the snow and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's the seven factors, a snowplow, you know? And so I started to think about it. I said, oh, yeah, that's actually how it works, that, that, that there is a point. And that point, uh, in some ways, uh, is the balance. And that is really the point of the the uh, this truth that uh, again and again in all the lists uh, is the primary piece here, this word sati or mindfulness. Uh, and it holds these factors. And uh, sometimes these are, as I said, they're actually talked about many times linearly. So I'm not disputing that, I'm just saying this is another way to hold it. And for me it's holding it between uh, what is arousing and what is stabilizing. And there are seven factors. And there are factors of uh, the arousing factors are investigation, uh, energy, uh, and joy. And the stabilizing are tranquility, uh, concentration, 
and equanimity. So these are sort of the factors. But the point in the center, kind of I thought of it as the, saw this snowplow, went, oh, that's it, there's a center here point. And that center point is this mindfulness itself. And mindfulness to me, is, it's just, uh, you know, it's something that as soon as we kind of turn the mind around, we know exactly what it is. You know, it's a mind that actually is full of this, of the here, of the now. You know, it can't be in the past, it can't be in the future. So it is actually this mind training that is based on the fundamentals of letting kind of that hope of anything different and the fear of anything not so. That somehow we have to give those up and rest in present moment. You know, that is the simpleness of the teaching. You know, sometimes it translated as memory, which is a, a piece that has to be there. But I find that the memory is not so... Um, it's not the linear kind of memory. It is really a momentary memory that in essence has to remind itself. You know, that this here, uh, this uh, wakefulness in the moment is enough. You know, and that's a lot to say a lot because, you know, we have so many ideas and so much past and some kind of anticipation. And so this is really about the example of peace and ease. It's just, this is it, you know. And that somehow uh, there has to be a deep understanding. And they talk about it as the mindfulness, in a sense, uh, is just momentary. It's simply momentary. And it has to be supported. If there are enough moments of this mindfulness, then there is a, a kind of an intelligence or, or recognition and the word is sampapajana. It is, there is a clear comprehension that begins to develop. And we're all sitting here and we're actually developing this clear comprehension of how it is, you know, to stay moment after moment after moment. Now, there are some uh, really supports. I see it as kind of a mandala uh, that happens with this, this kind of intelligence, this sampapajana. Uh, this uh, ability that uh, if there's this momentary mindfulness and it steadies itself, that this clear comprehension, uh, first, it is clear comprehension of purpose. You know, and I think so much about this that somehow you know, there is a, a fundamental longing. You know, it is inherent in all of us, you know, in human being. That to understand uh, there is suffering, uh, to actually to be mindful, to know that it exists, and recognize that there is causes. And there is also freedom and a way, a path uh, leading to that freedom. So there is actually in the, in the comprehension, in the clear understanding of this, is that we understand what we're doing. Uh, in the fundamentals of this, when there's a kind of that clear comprehension uh, of uh, purpose, they say, 
one of the things that over the years and years, my years in Asia, one of the texts I studied many years ago is uh, a text called the Tathagata Garbha. Uh, and it is uh, about Buddha nature. And it simply says, you know, that we, uh, as human beings, uh, that uh, like uh, they give uh, kind of similes of the the husk and the grain, the uh, that thing that's buried, uh, a, a Buddha uh, covered uh, by a rag, you know. And it somehow, uh, when Sylvia was talking the other night about, you know, the, these hindrances that kind of hold us and there's kind of a collection there, that there is the possibility, you know, uh, that these things are actually um, first uh, the kind of this situation here kind of pushes them aside somewhat. There's also, uh, there's this thing called a clear comprehension, one of the other pieces. I always see it as a mandala. So there's that clear comprehension of purpose and this truth of kind of um, this essence or goodness that is inherent in you. And that you do understand this, you know, uh, when things uh, kind of clear away some. And you also have the trust. And this is a, a piece of trust that has to come with experience, with the practice, in the sense of uh, staying mindful for long periods, that there begins a trust in, uh, they talk about it as suitability or adaptability. And this is an, really an important quality. Uh, of mindfulness is that when it begins to trust the moment and that somehow I'm enough, this is enough, uh, that when that begins to happen, uh, there is this uh, truth that uh, we have this phenomenal ability through that mindfulness to adapt to whatever situation, whatever arises. Uh, it may be a moment of startledness and fear and whatever, but the mindfulness will bring us back into balance. You know, it's sort of like sometimes I think of those, there are these kind of blow-up dolls with the, with the sand in the bottom. You kind of hit it, and the thing can go way down, but it comes back. And that's the adaptability, the suitability that's built into that mindfulness. You know, as the kind of, uh, a foothold uh, that exists in the truth of that. You know. And the third piece in this mandala is uh, that uh, the mind itself, uh, when it is uh, momentary, that uh, they call it clear comprehension of meditation. And for me, it's simply that uh, I can remember to stay here. I can remember to be mindful again. It's built into it that once we begin to follow this, that it begins to support itself. The mindfulness supports its mindfulness. And that that, even though it's, we would call it momentary memory, 
that we're all here actually working uh, every time we come back to the simplicity of a body sensation or the breath or we let go of a thought or we uh, kind of pull back uh, from a, some kind of emotion. That we're in essence kind of coming back into uh, the balance uh, of this momentary awareness. And then the fourth in this mandala uh, has to do with uh, a uh, clear comprehension. Uh, and this is a big thing. It's called clear comprehension of reality. Now, I'm not so sure about these are all kind of big words. But it's true that one begins to trust that, uh, that basic goodness that you know when, when kind of these hindrances and, and things are, and you're kind of settled down, that they move aside in some way. You know? And you begin to see that, oh, uh, all this manufacturing we're doing uh, is actually quite questionable. You know? All this storytelling, you know, I, I always imagine somehow that, you know, we have some handle on our past. But I'm not so sure of that. You know? Uh, and it's not that that's good or bad, it's just that, you know, it may not be the whole truth. You know? And that we have our own slant on how things were. And that slant may uh, be sometimes like a thorn. And our practice here, as I said, what we're doing here is in this garbage dump is we are, in a sense, kind of pulling out the thorns. It's a poultice that uh, pulls out the poison in some way. And we begin to see that, oh, how I see and, and, and how my mind works is I make things up all the time. I, I think in words, not in experience. And so actually, uh, I'm not seeing the reality of things. I am actually sitting there freezing things uh, in time. And our practice is not to do that. It is actually to see through uh, these sense doors of seeing and smelling and tasting and hearing and uh, kind of this uh, phenomenal uh, dance of the senses and thinking. And we began to say, oh, how substantial are they? You know? And there is a loosening. You know, it's like there's this grip on the words. There's a grip on how it is. You know, and we began to loosen our grip. And as we loosen our grip, then we began to see that, oh, things aren't substantial. You know, this is not some, uh, what I see or smell or hear. It's maybe not what's going on. Maybe it's just a transient reality that arises for a moment and that has no inherent existence on its own. And that's really cool. So it's actually empty of any inherent existence. Uh Uh-oh. All the things I made up about it, including myself, are very questionable here. From when we get that place where we're deep enough to see the phenomena that there is that that knows, there is a sense door, and then there are objects. And we begin to say, oh, I'm not so sure about the objects. You know, that they maybe are not what they appear to be. Maybe my thoughts, my idea of past, or 
is maybe not what it appears to be. So we began to loosen this grip and say, well, you know, this comprehensive reality, well, maybe it's not what it appears to be. And so in, in, in that sense, we start to give things space. You know, and we start to give it space, then there is two sides to this. One of them says simply that what we see into is not what appears. It may be empty of any inherent existence, of, of its own separateness. Myself and all the things. You know, this is huge. You know, it's really huge. But as we begin to see that, then we begin to also see, if you see the emptiness of it, you also see the inter- that if it's not, if there's no separate existence, then we can't change anything here. You know, it's all the way it is. It's the kind of, they use the word, tata, they use suchness. So there is this great suchness of everything. So you can relax. You know, you can have that ease and peace from this because, first of all, there's no inherent existence, all empty of that. And that everything is connected. And you can't take, you can't, grab a molecule and run out of this room and throw it anywhere. Try it. You know, it doesn't work. It's all connected. You know, and so if it's all connected and if it's not what it appears to be, then relax. You know, you're fighting with, you know, a war that's impossible. You know, so you begin to find the simpleness of how this works. You know, and what this, the, the Buddha simply talked about these factors as awake, these factors of awakening as uh, the truth of finding uh, our equanimity, our balance in this. And so I like to think of it as a kind of like a teeter totter, you know, little kid's teeter totter. And there's the arousing and there's stabilizing. And we're always playing these two to find this place where these factors line up. You know, and actually they say that all 37 wings have to line up for a moment. And then it's kind of mysterious. You know. And what we're doing here is playing with these. And we have on one side, uh, we have uh, really the uh, factor first of investigation as the, uh, one of the arousing factors in, on this teeter-totter. You know, and it has to investigate. You know, it, it uh, and not to analyze. It's simply uh, to look into the truth on some level. You have to be very stable to do that. And again, uh, one of the things I see in the Western mind here, that uh, you know, it's it's uh, and particularly in our communities that as I travel around the country and around the world, and, and one of the things that's quite phenomenal is we're really good at this. You know, oh, we are, uh, in, in a sense, I always call us the doubters. You know, so we have to actually start from this place of, uh, of uh, kind of the, the investigator is actually the doubter and begins to uh, study uh, the material itself uh, quite precisely. But now there is also, there's a hindrance in this uh, investigation. Uh, if it's not balanced, then it turns into a kind of anxiousness. 
you know, in a sense, I just remember, you know, the years that when I first went to Paris in the, in the 60s, you know, as a kind of a, I think I hoped to be a beatnik, but I wasn't, I'm somewhere between hippie and beatnik, but I wasn't probably anything at that point. Uh, you know, I was just a kid uh, uh, searching for truth. You know, and I always like to think, because I've spent so much of my life, you know, moving, seeing. And recently I heard this thing that was so, it's been so touching to me in the sense of the, the seeker, in a way. And it, it had to do with um, uh, up in the Gobi Desert, the nomads up there. And the nomads uh, had this uh, line. You know, and it went... Uh, searching uh, for the beginning of the wind. You know, searching for the beginning of the wind. And it was so impactful because I realized that was, that's the kind of the essence of uh, the seeker. Uh, the searching for the beginning of the wind. And I think I've spent my life kind of seeking that beginning of the wind on some level. You know. And, um, it's not that there's an answer to this. There's just that you have to keep this in quality of investigation uh, in balance. You know? So if it gets, there's too much of it, and I see this culturally, then there's a sense of anxiousness. Kind of, uh, you know? And I saw that, and the reason I said Paris, because I was thinking back to the whole existential movement and the fact that you know, uh, it was uh, nothing that this was just, uh, in a sense, kind of, you know, not zero point, you know. And I think the, in a sense, had to start there uh, to begin to actually build build into this practice of uh, proper investigation, you know. And it is. The Buddha was a great physician and a great scientist, uh, but he was looking beyond, you know, uh, those um, into that, you know, what he just simply said, the transcendent, you know, or the super mundane. You know. So we have that as that quality of investigation. The same way another arousing factor, we have to have the, the a balance of energy to do this practice. And again, it has this quality of, of sometimes, you know, it may be going to yoga and, and uh, finding some way to bring the energy up or walking a little faster. Or uh, somehow, uh, one of my favorites is to take refuge in the Buddha. It brings some kind of, you know, light to my, when I'm really kind of uh, groggy and stuff. And it can actually bring some, uh, through faith and, and sometimes I think greed, um, that... that um, that it kind of brings uh, that sense of lightness and I can actually balance myself in some way uh, through uh, a sense of, uh, you know, uh, the regalness of these, you know, statues. Uh, they're so dignified, you know, and that, that in that dignity there's, dignity, there's such energetics that are wonderful. So the third of these, and I, I have to speak of these, is the investigation 
the way I see it, which you won't find anywhere, is really about our mind. You know, it's a mind piece. Uh, the energy uh, in the arousing has to do with the body. And so the third of these has to do with joy or sometimes translated of rapture. And um, I think sometimes we underplay this. You know, oh, it's so serious, you know. But actually, I think we need a lot more humor. But anyway, uh, the real truth is that uh, when we can, we need it, you know, there is the capacity to bring a lightness or joy to your practice. You know, and it, it actually uh, brings it up so that when you're kind of stagnating in some way or you're kind of caught up, you can um, bring some joy to your heart because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about investigation of the mind, this uh, balancing and, and energizing of the body, and this truth that the heart has this incredible capacity you know, and sometimes I find that just a little bit of uh, awareness of samatha, you know. And, uh, you know, for me, the metta is, there's two things. There's one, you know, I love you, you love me. And it's sort of this kind of contract, you know, that usually, you know, it's, anyway, it's questionable. Uh, <laughs> and then there's metta. And metta says, I have, there's no differentiation here. There is this open heart, you know, and that open heart can support itself in caring for itself. And it brings this uh, balance to the mindfulness. So any of these, you may find that, you know, if you're kind of floating off, uh, these are some pieces of the mind or the body or the heart that uh, you can uh, work with to bring it into balance. The same way there are the stabilizing factors. And the stabilizing factors, these are usually run kind of in a row, but um, as again I said, I think it's just, you know, this kind of, uh, this, you know, snowplow on the end of it, there's this teeter-totter uh, that we're always somehow working with. And one of the things is we work a lot here uh, with the stabilizing factors. And the stabilizing factors first is the, just the idea of uh, us sitting here and then walking slow. It actually has to do uh, with the factor of tranquility, which is settling the body down. And if the body is not settled down, it's very hard for the mind or heart. So just to uh, be aware of that. You know? So the stabilization is sometimes... You know, when there's a state of uh, sometimes worry or restlessness, uh, it's just to sit, you know. I like in the Zen tradition, just just the posture itself, just sit in the posture. You know, don't do anything. Just sit in the posture. It's good enough. You know, you can do that. You know, and it'll bring that, in a sense, you know, from if there's too much anxiousness or your stories or whatever, that it can, just that alone can bring it sometimes into balance. You know, or slowing down. Uh, it can be so helpful, you know, and really making it very precise of the mind 
kind of connected and staying in the body from step to step, you know, and beginning to have some kind of uh, an assessment. We can do that here. Uh, this ability to use the tranquility uh, of uh, the sitting and slowing down and the walking and the mindful eating and mindful everything. The continuity of that uh, has this incredible ability to stabilize. And that's really the body itself, another that's a piece around the body. Uh, The piece around the mind is the concentration. And uh, the concentration uh, is really, uh, Sylvia spoke of the other night, it's, it's you know, I, 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 I'm not sure if I even like that word, you know, because what we're talking about here is a natural collecting. Uh, it's the, it, the mind begins to, uh, by having a tranquil body, it begins to settle itself and begins to see, in a sense, uh, what the ease and the peace that is already there. Uh, when, uh, in the sense, the mind uh, is not going anywhere but back here, whether it's on the breath or the body, or even uh, like Heather was speaking of, of just, you know, our observation of the, of the uh, emotion and, you know, in the body and how it, uh, how it works. Now it can uh, certainly it can be used to um, uh, and has its healing functions uh, to go into very absorbed states and it's very helpful in the sense of giving a sense of um, strength and lightness uh, so that the mind can actually look at what's true. Now, if there's too much concentration from this, from one point of view, then oh, they say that what we begin to miss uh, is the truth of impermanence, of suffering, and uh, the emptiness or the selfless nature of things. You know, uh, we got kind of wrapped up into the wonder of it. Uh, but from the practice's point of view. Uh, the sense of collectedness has to be able to be balanced to see into those, what they call the characteristics. Uh, they are fundamental here. Uh, they are uh, that can, that can uh, support our seeing clearly and our wisdom factor. Uh, the last of these is uh, equanimity. And sometimes they put these all in the, you know, wrote that it finally ends with equanimity. Uh, equanimity, again, if the tranquility is the body and the concentration is the mind, uh, what's interesting is this, is the equanimity is the heart. Uh, it is one of the uh, founding factors of, the, of these of four Brahma Viharas. You know, and certainly... Uh, that joy and particularly sympathetic joy is part of the of uh, a practice, but equanimity uh, is also a practice uh, that brings from in 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 itself is stable. You know, 
and uh, in a sense a heart that is unshakable. You know, I think what I'd like to do, I'll, I'll read a piece from, because um, I, I, I think the, in essence, the truth of this equanimity, this capacity to find uh, a, um, a heart that is not lost in itself or other. This is from Nanya Pernika Thera. Uh, Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states uh, of compassion and sympathetic joy and loving kindness. It's point, it points out to them the direction they have to take. It sees to it that this direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in the vain quest, in vain quests, and from going astray in the labyrinth of uncontrolled emotions. Equanimity being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal. And this is the piece for me. For the sake of the final goal. That the, when the heart, that equanimity, uh, recognizes this deathless, this truth of freedom, you know. And we need to have somehow a way to balance uh, these factors because they all have to line up, you know. And the art here, it's, it's, it's kind of like tightrope walking because it's always really, you know, it's always where we're just working with this in some ways, you know. That center point, uh, the mindfulness, and the fact that if we can stay with it for enough moments, uh, these factors uh, in a self can be self-correcting. But at the same time, to know about them, because when we get out of balance, you know, we get too lost in some story, some something, uh, it's not that we're trying to um, get rid of anything. It's that we're here, we have this possibility of finding uh, kind of these supports uh, that support the kind of direction of awakening. You know. I guess uh, kind of a last piece here is about awakening itself. This is not something foreign to you, by the way. This is something uh, so inherently uh, true. You know, the Buddha said that if if you couldn't get it, I wouldn't teach it. You know, so uh, I think this is a big thing. If you couldn't get it, I wouldn't teach it. So right there, uh, he had complete confidence in us, and I mirror this back to you that you have this capacity, you know, for all the craziness you've done uh, and all, uh, you know, the truth of uh, how much forgiveness has to be there uh, to let go of uh, the past. You know, it's, that's true, you know. And that we can't, no matter what we do, we cannot change the past. You know, this is not that. 
this is our willingness to hold the past. In a sense, our hopes and our future. Also, in this truth of, uh, can I just let go and come back to the present? Can I be that? No. In a way that allows uh, this balancing. The last piece here, I was thinking, you know, I always have to write this poem because I don't know what else I'm doing most of the time with all these, all this material. It's like so vast and rich and uh, inspiring, you know, and so many different takes on it that I, I can't really put them together that way. It's not the way my mind works, you know. But I was thinking back, uh, oh, you know, it was the end of uh, one of the, oh, 20 years ago at the end of the, three-month retreat in Barrie. And, and uh, in those days, you know, everybody had got up, and I don't know if they still do it, you know, get up and, you know, you have to say something, you know. And it's like horrifying, you know. Uh, so I was trying, you know, I was going around the room, and, and, you know, there were 100 people, and, you know, they're kind of saying their little things and everything, and I thought, well, I can't do this, you know. And one of the things is, is that I've always had really fear of public speaking and getting up in front of people, and that was my thing, you know, back 35, 40 years ago, you know, and this was the fear of, of even, you know, in managing or even speaking out in front, in front of people. And so I had to do something, you know, and I thought, well, I just, maybe I should just run. You know, that, that would be, you know, kind of the right way to do it. But it really, I, I think of it now because it, it's, it's, uh, it was my kind of first foray into recognizing on some level uh, that I had a different way. And it goes, mind, heart, scrub, scuffed up shoes, flower opens. Mind, heart, scrub, scuffed up shoes. Flower opens. So simple. Can I read my poem for the Crow, so many crows. I saw it when I was leaving. I was thinking of this, and I was driving down, and there were so many crows down there. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, they must have thought I heard them, or they heard me, or something, or we heard each other, you know. Crow speaks. May the sanctuary of this practice, held so keenly by the two winged crow, bursting with its chatter, sending its message from retreatants to the heavens, perched on the pinnacle of our hall, viewing our own longing for freedom, covered over by the dark door of our own hope and fear. We sit quietly, unruffled by the unseen. The weight of our shadow, slowly dissolving under the intense light 
of our own awareness. The great light of our own goodness shining from behind. Believing that we will be blinded. Slowly, we turn into, directly into, the sun. Words, ideas, images, dissolving in the light of this truth. The words and ideas and images dissolving in the light of this truth. Finally exhausted, we stop struggling. A free being can only praise what it cannot describe. A free being can only praise what it cannot describe. Every bit of the known relaxes in this wonderment of peace. Let's just sit for a moment. Stay awake. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.